We're up to chapter four, Mishnah number one of Perkei Avos, and it's very exciting. We're beginning the second half of the book. The first three chapters are behind us, and now we begin chapter four. So let's read the message, read the Mishnah, and then go a little bit in the backstory of Ben Zoma, the author of the Mishnah, and then get back to the content of the Mishnah. Ben Zoma Omer. This individual's name was Shimon, Shimon Ben Zoma. The son, his father's name was Zoma. And he used to say the following aphorism. Ezehu Chacham, who is truly wise, Halo made me call Adam. Whoever studies, who learns from each person. From all my teachers, I grew wise. He quotes a verse to substantiate his claim that who, who is really wise, not the person you may think is wise, but the one who's always learning from every person that they encounter. Ezehu Gibar, who is mighty, who is strong? Hakovesh et Yitzro, whoever conquers his Yetzer, his evil inclination. We have an evil inclination. You think the mighty one is the guy in the octagon or in the ring? No, it's not, it's not that person. It's the one who conquers their internal nemesis. You conquer your Yetzara. That's the truly mighty one. Shinemar again quotes a verse. Tovar Chapayim, Yibar Moshe Baruch Ir. Better is he who is slow to anger. Then a strong man and one who controls his passions is better than a conqueror of a city. Ezel Ashir Asamech Mechalka, who is truly rich, he who is happy with his lot. Again, quotes a verse, The labor of your hands, when you eat, you are praiseworthy, and it is well to you. He adds that when it says that someone who is happy with his lot is wealthy, they're praiseworthy in this world, and it's good for them in the next world. And finally, he concludes, Ezel Mechubad, who is honorable, HaMechabed et Habriot, the person who honors other people. Again, quotes a verse, For those who honor me, I shall honor, and those who scorn me shall be degraded. So, a lot here to unpack. He tells us uh, four things that people assume... Uh, one thing, you know, who is, who is rich, who's, who's intelligent, who's wise, who is honorable, who is mighty. You think it's these t- people, really, it's that people. And each one of them is substantiated with a verse. So obviously a lot to say, but let's talk a little bit about the character, the author of the Mishnah, Shimon ben Zoma. It's interesting. He's not classified here as a rabbi. And we find out in the Talmud that he was quite young. And he was considered a student, and he had actually – there was a group of Shimons, all of them had the same first name. There was Shimon ben Zoma, Shimon the son of Zoma, and Shimon ben Azai, who incidentally is the author of the upcoming Mishnah, Mishnah number two. Uh, they two were students, and they were students that were so outstanding that they would be almost on par with the sages, with the ones that preceded him. Even though they were very young, they were very advanced but uh, they were never ordained. It's possible that they were never ordained because they died young. It's not so clear from the, from the source. But it is clear that at junctures in, in the history when we find out about them, they were very young, yet they were considered on the same pedestal as the sages of, of Yavna. Uh, both of them were students of Rabbi Yehoshua. We've spoken about it many times. And both of them were not ordained uh, – possibly for different reasons. Now, there's an interesting teaching in the Talmud to get a sense of the stature that they held. The Talmud talks about marriage. So how how marriage has to happen. There's a certain saying, a certain statement you have to make 
in order to facilitate the marriage. So the man has to say, will you marry me? But in a halachic language, so that it actually has halachic validity. So the Talmud talks about all kinds of conditions that the man could say, and then what happens is the valid marriage is not a valid marriage. So for example, let's say the guy says, marry me on condition that I'm a huge, super-duper tzaddik. I'm really righteous. We know he's not that righteous. So is it legit? Is it not? So the Talmud ultimately says yes, because, or at least we have to suspect that it is legitimate and she has to be treated like a married woman because maybe he repented. And we don't know it was in his heart. We can't know what's in his heart. Maybe he repented. And maybe he is really righteous because in that instant he repented and became righteous. Now the next day, doesn't matter what happened the next day. At the time, it was a true condition. The condition was fulfilled, and therefore, maybe she's married. She would need a divorce if she wants to marry someone else. But anyhow, the Talmud talks about the following statement made by a man in a proposal to his wife or to his uh, to the wo- to the woman he wants to be- betroth, and he says, "Marry me on condition that I am a great student of Torah." So they say, "Well, how much of a student of Torah must he be?" We don't say that we expect him to be like Shimon ben Zoma or Shimon ben Azai. Even though they were students, they weren't ordained as rabbis, as sages, as elders. But still, they're a class on their own. They're a different level. They're tremendously overachievers. And therefore, that's not what people expect. Rather, it means the average student. And by the way, what does it mean the average student? Says the Talmud, this is the student, not the, the sage. It means whatever you talk to them about, whatever they study, they have familiarity with it. It's not foreign to them. And then it goes on to say, what if someone says, marry me on the condition that I'm a sage? What level of sage are we talking about? It's not like Rabbi Akiva and his friends in Yavna. Those are the highest sages that we've ever seen. That's more than uh, is the average uh, the average sage. Rather, it's 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 just the run of the mill sage. What does that mean? You can ask them any question in all of Talmud, and they'll know the answer. Again, this gives us a sense that even though they were students, they were still uh, a, you know shoulders and above everyone else, uh, all their other peers. Now, Benzoma makes another memorable appearance in the Passover Haggadah. There is a statement that we say at the, towards the beginning of the Passover Haggadah, where it talks about the mitzvah of telling over the story of the Exodus and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, again, a, a sage that we've talked about recently. He says that I've, I'm around 70 years old and I never merited to say the story of Passover at nights until Ben Zoma expounded the verse and he taught us that we're supposed to teach even at night the story of the Exodus. Okay, and that's just another historical note that every year during the Passover Seder, we mention Benzoma as well, um, along with many other sages, he makes an appearance in the Passover Haggadah. Now, there's another Midrash in which uh, Benzoma makes a very powerful, insightful uh, comment They're talking about why Judah was selected as the leader. You know, Judah became the family and the tribe that the monarchy extended from Judah. Why from Judah? Why not from Benjamin or Ruvain or someone else? So the Midrash talks about that. It says, don't say that Judah was more mighty, he was more physically capable, because look at Shimon and Levi. Look what they did to a whole city. Obviously, they were men of tremendous uh, physical vigor and strength. So it can't be that. 
Rather, it looks at one episode of, of Judah's life that seems to be a shameful episode in his life, but really it, it demonstrates that he had leadership qualities. And that is the episode of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. She gets dressed up like a prostitute. Uh, he consorts with her and he doesn't discover her identity, but he gives her some identifying uh, marks like her signa- his signet ring and his staff – and then later on, she's pregnant, like, ooh, what a scandal, and, and he's presiding over her case, and then she shows up and she says, well, the man who owns these things is uh, is the is the real father, and Judah recognizes that it's him, and he says, she's more righteous than me, and the rest is history. That descendants, those twins, eventually are the forebearers of Messiah, of King David, that lineage of, of, of the monarchy. And the Midrash tells us that Judah had actually had the cover to deny it. He had a plausible deniability. Why? He could say, listen, she's his daughter-in-law. She went into his house. She took his signet ring. She went into his house. She took his staff. She is setting him up. He had an alibi. And who else was there? It says the Midrash. Jacob was there. Isaac was there. All of Judah's brothers were there. And none of them thought he was guilty. And yet he had the strength of character to admit, to fess up. And that shows that he's someone who is not acting, you know, with their own self-interest, but what's correct, what's righteous, what's just. And that is the characteristics of a leader, the characteristics of a king. And that's why he was selected to be the king, to be the leader. And then it quotes a statement from Benzoma. Benzoma says that if someone is ashamed in this world, then they know they could save themselves from shame in the next world. And that's the idea that Judah was willing to swallow his pride and to be ashamed and to admit his quote-unquote misdeeds publicly. And by doing that, he made sure that forever he's heralded as a hero. Now, maybe the most uh, famous teachings that we find about Benzoma or stories about Benzoma are the fact that he would, um, he was a, an expert at matters of uh, esoterica. And the Talmud even brings that he was, uh, when they would need a creative solution to very uh, vexing dilemmas, they would go to him. He would, he would always come up with a solution to, to the most difficult questions. But the Talmud says that he was part of a cadre of students or of sages that immerse themselves in the most advanced, esoteric, arcane, Kabbalistic studies with varying results. The Talmud says, very famous Talmud in the book of Hadidah, page 14b, four people entered the pardes, they entered the orchard, which is a euphemism for engaging in the most advanced studies of what's called Masimakava, Masibracious, which is, again, real Kabbalah, not putting a red string around your uh, wrist Kabbalah. And who were these? Number one, Ben Azai. Number two, Ben Zoma. Number three, Acher. Acher is the only rabbi that went off. He was a great sage, and he became corrupted, became a heretic. And possibly because of this story, his name was uh, Elisha Ben Avuya. He was the teacher of Rabbi Meir, 
Rabbi Meir is the one who's the basis, his writings are the basis of the Mishnah. And his teacher went awry. And by the way, there is a Mishnah later on that's authored by Acher, by Elisha ben Why is he called Acher? Acher means the other guy. Why is he called Acher? Because the Talmud says that when he went awry, when he became a heretic, it was Shabbos. And right away he left the academy. Why he left, it's a whole story, but he left the academy and he went to uh, solicit a prostitute on Shabbos. And uh, she was a little bit puzzled by uh, his overtures. And she said, are you, aren't you the famous rabbi? Like, aren't you in the wrong neighborhood? What are you doing here? So Shabbos, and he went to the ground, and he plucked out a, like a flower from the ground, which, of course, is something you don't do on Shabbos. So she said to him, oh, you must be Acher. You must be someone else. I must have gotten you mixed up with someone else. You might you have you have a doppelganger. And uh, that became his name. He became assigned his name. And the rest of his life, his students were trying to get him to come back. And uh, it seems like it didn't work. He was convinced that it wouldn't work. And all that probably is linked to this story of what he saw, what he experienced when he went into this uh, Kabbalistic um, uh, trance, if you will. And finally, the fourth of this quartet is, of course, the great Rabbi Kiva. And the Talmud tells us, the Rebbe gave them some advice about what they should do, and some people listened, some people didn't. Uh, ben Azai, he got too close, and he died. It seems like Ben Azai, he he looked, he peered beyond what was he what, what he was allowed to, and like Torah tells us, you can't look at God and live, you can't connect on a sensory level to the highest realms and still survive. It just doesn't work, and therefore he looked too close, and he died. Benzoma, he didn't die, but he was he was injured. It seems like he was injured mentally. He went crazy. That's the author of Ramishta. Acher, he went awry, and Rabbi Kiva was the only one who went with peace and left with peace, and actually said with peace. This is, in fact, when the Talmud talks about Kabbalah, it's these few pages in Talmud, the book of Hadidah, around 1415. That's where the sources are for all these things. So uh, so that gives us maybe another reason why, this is the speculation, why Ben-Azai was never made Rabbi Ben-Azai, Rabbi Shimon Ben-Azai, because he died in this episode. And Ben-Zoma, the author of our Mishnah, was never made Rabbi Ben-Zoma because, again, he also suffered irreparable damage as a result of this episode, and he was never ordained. It seems like the they only ordained someone when they were very advanced and um, and proven uh, as as sages and scholars. So that's a little bit of the background of uh, Shimon ben Zoma, the author of our Mishnah. There are some other stories about them, about him in the Talmud that uh, I chose to omit. But uh, this is the basic uh, the basic picture we get from our sages in the Talmud and how they codified his his life story. Now he teaches us here that there are different kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that we generally attribute wisdom with, and then there's the real wisdom, someone who learns from every person. There's varying degrees of mightiness. You could, you, someone who's really strong, got bulging muscles, may be misattributed as really mighty, but someone who overcomes their inclination, that's the person who's truly mighty, and so on. You think someone who has lots of assets, has a huge bank account, has uh, sprawling properties, that's rich. No, that's not really rich. Someone who's happy with their lot, that's the person who's rich. We think someone who has a huge following and uh, lots of admirers, 
That's someone who is honorable. No, someone who honors others, that's someone who's truly honorable. Now, it is interesting, and all the commentaries, when they talk about this Mishnah, they all point to the verse in Jeremiah. The verse in Jeremiah talks about taking pride in your in your accomplishments. And it says, don't be prideful with your wisdom. Don't be prideful with your might. Don't be prideful with your wealth. That's all from God. Be prideful with how much you yourself really accomplished. And again, these three things that are listed here in the Mishnah, they make that appearance in that verse. And it seems like Benzoma is basing his teaching on these three things, wealth, wisdom, and might. Now, I want to just make a quick note here, just a quick disclaimer. There is voluminous commentary in this Mishnah. And um, I don't want to give off the impression that we've covered that we're going to cover it all, because there really is a tremendous a lot, and and therefore I, I had to select what to talk about and what not to talk about, because I think we could really spend the whole semester on this one Mishnah and really and really delve into it. So I just want to make that clear ahead of time. We're going to try to cover it in one in one sitting in one session, uh, but we're going to have to just. Um, by necessity, we're going to have to make the choice of what we're going to talk about, what we're not going to talk about. Now, in addition to that verse in Jeremiah, there's also another teaching in the Talmud that seems to indicate that there, that three things, these three things, how strong you are, how wise you are, and how rich you are, are all predetermined by God before you were born. Why? The Talmud says, the book of Nida, page 16b, when a child is about to be conceived, the angel takes the primordial biological matter, brings it to God and says, okay, what's going to be with this child and this person that's going to emerge from this cocktail? Is this child going to be strong or weak? They can be physically robust or, or, or feeble. Are they going to be wise or are they going to be foolish? How intellectual they're going to be. And finally, will they be rich or will they be poor? All that's already determined. However, says the Talmud, whether they'll be a tzaddik, whether they'll be righteous, or they'll be a rush, or they'll be wicked, that's not determined. And concludes the Talmud with the famous statement, everything is in the hands of heaven, aside from fear of heaven. All the other things are predetermined. It's, it's, it's almost, it's genetic. How can you be prideful about it? But the, the degree of, of spiritual refinement, how righteous you are, that's in your hands. And therefore you can't blame your genes on that. You can only blame yourself. So we have these two sources, the Talmud and we have this, uh, the verse and comes along with Zomli. He's like, yes, what people talk about when they talk about wealth, that doesn't really matter because of how can you be prideful of that? It's given to you by God before you were even born. People talk about wisdom. Again, it's your genetics. It's not really something you could take pride for. How rich you are, how poor you are, again, these are up to matters that are beyond your control. However, there is a different version of wealth. There is a different version of might. There is a different version of intellect that is part of the fear of heaven sphere. It is within your choice. It is within the bounds of your free will. You do have a say in that kind of intellect, in that kind of wisdom, in that kind of wealth, in that kind of might, and therefore, that is what's truly yours. If you want to be truly wise, you want to be truly mighty, you want to be truly 
wealthy than you to do that. You focus on those areas or, or those angles of, of wealth, might, and intellect. So that's the, the general uh, background for this teaching. Now, the commentaries talk about this Mishnah. You can talk about it by the four separate things independently, or you can talk about the big picture. So we'll go through a few examples of the big picture, and then we'll talk about the uh, the small picture. There is another place where the Talmud lists these three characteristics together again as 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 wealth, wisdom, and uh, might. It talks about, and this is very surprising. It says, "The Almighty is only going to give prophecy to someone who is mighty." Wealthy, wise, and humble. You want to be a prophet and you're not rich? You want to be a prophet and you don't have bulging muscles? You want to be a prophet you're not the sharpest uh, bulb in the drawer, knife in the drawer? Sorry, you can't do it. You have to have those characteristics. And the obvious question is, you know, the Talmud itself says that those things are predetermined. How rich you are, how, how smart you are, all in the hands of God, all done before you were even born, before you even conceived. How could I lose out on my opportunity for prophecy if I don't have those things which are out of my hand? So one of the commentaries says a very fascinating thing. He says the only thing that matters is how humble you are. The only thing that matters is humility, is subservience to God. That's the only thing that matters in determining whether or not you're a prophet. But if someone is feeble and they're poor and they're not that intelligent, yet they're humble, their humility is kind of not that big of a deal. Because after all, what do they really have going for them? Not much. How difficult was, was it for them to become humble? It wasn't that difficult at all. Because kind of life conditioned them towards humility. On the other side, you see someone who's tremendously wealthy, yet is humble. Someone who's tremendously intelligent, yet is humble. Someone who's tremendously physically gifted, robust and strong, yet they're humble. That humility was very difficult to achieve because everything in their life was pushing them towards hubris. And nonetheless, they became humble. That's a person who truly earned their humility and therefore, they become worthy of prophecy. What we find out over here is that really what matters is, is humility. That's the characteristic that really matters for someone to be a prophet. And therefore, is there a version of wealth, of wisdom, of strength, of might that is one that exudes humility? That's the question. And what do we find over here? You have a wise person that can be wise, that can get to their head, or they can say, I'm learning from every person. Every person, even the people that are smaller than me, even people that are less intelligent than me. That is an act of wisdom that is rooted in, in humility. And similarly, what do you have? A mighty person whose might is not going to lead him to hubris, but to humility, not to haughtiness, but to subservience, that's someone who does not use their might for anything other than internally overcoming 
their Yetzirah, not to use it to lord over others, not to use it to aggrandize themselves over others, but to use it to overcome themselves. That's an act of humility, and that's might married with humility. Similarly, someone who's rich and does not view it as something that makes them better than other people, they're happy with what they have, which, by the way, could mean that they have a lot. It could mean that they have a little, but they don't realize, they don't, they don't, they don't, or they don't misinterpret it as if they're better because they're richer or as if their money or their, their wealth is something which is attributable to them. Rather, they're happy with what God gave them and they know to use it properly. So again, there's a common theme here of these characteristics that could potentially lead someone to be haughty, but instead are used in a humble fashion. Uh, my grandfather, of blessed memory, he talked several times about this Mishnah, and he said that there is, um, we have, we exist on different planes. We exist externally, and we exist internally. Which, broadly speaking, could be the breakdown of body and soul. You know, we have the, the body, which is our external persona, and we have the soul, which is our internal persona. And there's tension between those two identities. You know, wh- which one of those is us, and which one of those is the imposter, or which one of those is the afterthought? That, of course, is the tension that that accompanies us throughout our life. And that's what Torah is trying to, to, to navigate. That's the, that's what it's trying to push. That's what it's trying to influence. And then here we see this clash of our internal self and our external self. If you ask someone who's a rich person, there's the external rich and then there's the internal rich. Who's the wise person? There's someone who's externally wise and someone who's internally wise. Who is the one who is externally mighty? And who is the one who is internally mighty? And what Benzoma here is encouraging us to do is to look inward, to have our inward identity come forth. And internally, what makes you wise is learning from other people, not how how you score on the IQ test, in the uh, Stanford Binet test. It's not about you know how much you know, how much knowledge you amassed, how much trivia you know, but rather are you someone who's internally trying to connect to wisdom, even if it means asking someone who knows less than you? Again, externally, might. That's why you look like, look like in the gym. It's the uh, size of your biceps. It's the uh, curvature of your, uh, of your muscles, of your glutes. Yeah, look at me, right? That's what externally, that's just, that's the strength, that's the might of your body. What's the might of your soul? That's when you overcome your internal foe and really confront the devil, so to speak, that exists within each, each, each and every one of us. And again, similarly with wealth, there's, there's the external wealth, the wealth of the body. What's the wealth of the soul? The wealth of the soul, someone who's happy with their, with their lot. And you can have a situation, someone who is financially poor, but internally wealthy. And of course, the flip side exists as well. Financially very wealthy, but spiritually or soulfully very poor because you're, you're, you're so miserable by how, how, how little you actually have. And ironically, the more someone gets, the more familiar they become with large, large numbers and therefore the more they can feel like they're lacking.
You know, if someone just wants to buy their first home, that's their ambitions. The amount that they're missing is comparatively very low versus someone who already has everything that money could buy, but is not of the fact that there's billionaires that have even more than them. Their deficit, so to speak, is even larger. So again, this in, this, this struggle, this conflict that we have with our internal self, with our internal identity and our external identity, again, is, is, is a through line, a threading this teaching of, of Benzoma. But going uh, more specifically here, you know, the obvious question is, why would you learn from every person? Doesn't it make sense to only learn from people who are wise, who are capable? So Rabbeinu Yonah, he says something very interesting. He says that someone's wisdom that they've acquired and someone's wisdom that they have yet to acquire could be entirely different. How so? You have someone who that, you know, that has a lot of wisdom, but doesn't love it. And therefore, they're not going to pursue so much. They, they, their future earnings, so to speak, are, are pretty bleak. Whereas someone on the flip side, who maybe they have the, what they've accomplished already today is not that remarkable, but what they're going to accomplish in the future is the, the, the prospects are quite bullish because they love wisdom and they're constantly pursuing wisdom. Someone like that, that's what he's talking about. He said, it's not about what you've accomplished Hitherto, it's about what you're going to accomplish and how do we determine what you're going to accomplish in wisdom? How eager you are to learn from every person that you encounter. He compares it to someone, the true lover of wisdom is someone that's always looking, always trying to find a new insight, a new understanding, a new, a new piece of knowledge, a new skill. And he compares it to someone who's looking for gold. You know, there's no amount of gold that's negligible. It's all valuable. If you truly value wisdom, then you're not going to say, well, this kind of gold is not for me. Eh, it's not that much gold. If you really value it, if you truly understand its its worth, then every little bit of it, every smattering of wisdom is something that you'll value. And therefore, you'll demonstrate that by even learning from every person. There's another point here that the Chassid Yavitz tells us. He says, when you ask someone a question, someone who is smaller than you, quote-unquote, that shows that in your hierarchy of values, you value wisdom above your pride. Because if your pride dominated you, like, I can't lower myself to ask them, what do they know? And when someone says, I'm going to ask even them, they're, they're, they're showing, they're exhibiting that their wisdom really matters. They truly are desirous of it. And therefore, they're willing to find any, any, any source, any originator of wisdom is worth, is worthwhile for them. And there's a famous line from the Rambam that we have to pursue truth from wherever it comes from. And we know the Rambam was, uh, uh, not averse to even studying the, the great secular philosophers to understand, you know, their wisdom and to plumb their wisdom. Again, that's a separate subject, but this is a, a very important idea that we have to always look for wisdom wherever we could find it. Now, there's another idea, and that is that every person is given a collection, a catalog of character, of good and bad. Everyone's a mix. Everyone is a mixed bag. Everyone has some good and some bad. How does someone perfect themselves? 
How does someone acquire all good character? The answer is found in this Mishnah. Who is someone who's truly wise? Who is someone who has incorporated all the good character within themselves? Someone who learns from every person. Every other person, yes, in aggregate, you may be greater than them, but there's definitely something that they have that they could teach you. There's definitely some component of their character that has some aspect of it that's admirable, something that they're better at than you. And if you try to find what is that special character about this person that I meet and try to assimilate that within yourself, and you do that for every person that you encounter, eventually you'll amass or, or you'll integrate within yourself all the good character and become someone who is truly wise. What the Mishnah here is encouraging us to do is to pinpoint the admirable traits of people that we come across, to find out the areas in which they excel, and to try to work on adopting those qualities. And someone who does, you know, who, who partakes in this pursuit eventually will overhaul their entire character profile and they'll become someone who's truly wise, someone who really has all the good characteristics within them. There's even a Talmud that my grandfather quoted that says that if we didn't have Torah, we'd still have to become better people. But how do you become better people without Torah? Well, you have to study. Well, how do you study without Torah? Well, you'll you'll emulate. Well, what do you emulate? The Talmud goes down to say you'll even emulate modesty from the cat, not to steal from the ant, not to engage in promiscuity from the dove, and proper character from the rooster. Because the way the rooster interacts with the rooster's spouse is uh, worthy of emulation. Again, the idea is, is that even the things that are not human around us, we have to find the characteristics of even the animals. You see the pet, you know, you'll never catch the cat going to the bathroom. Why? It has an inborn trait of modesty. <laughs> Similarly, the, 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 the ants, each ant has their own little, the, their own little stockpile of food and no, none of them touch the other person's stockpile. Again, what it's telling us is that there's a characteristic of, of learning not just from people, but from everything. To become a lifelong learner, you'll become a lifelong person who's always changing, always perfecting yourself, and getting closer and closer to someone who's truly wise, who really has everything going from them. Okay, quickly, we let's run through the uh, the rest of the teachings here. Again, there's voluminous commentary, and we can't get to all of it. What about conquering the Eight Sahara? It's more impressive than conquering a city. And it's been pointed out, it doesn't say, if you read the words of the Mishnah carefully, it doesn't say who is mighty, someone who conquered their Sahara. Rather, someone who is conquering, is continually conquering and subduing their Sahara. What that means is, someone who recognizes that this is a lifelong, ongoing, continuous battle. And there is an important Midrash. The Midrash portrays the Eight Sahara, the inclination, as a malicious and relentless and lifelong enemy. The Midrash says that you have people, you know, if you meet someone, you spend an hour with them, invariably, you'll become friends. You'll develop a rapport. But the Eight Sahara, even though it's been married to man since birth, it accompanies him his entire life, 
Nevertheless, if it sees an opportunity to make him falter at age 20, at age 40, at age 70, even at age 80, it will do what it can to bring him down. Is there a worse enemy than this? That's what the Talmud, that's what the Midrash says. Even if the Yetzirah fails a hundred times at its quest to usher the spiritual demise of man, it's not going to surrender. It's going to have tremendous determination to get man to succumb. We say that the reason why you have Torah is to be an antidote, to be a counterweight to the Yetzirah. And here we see that what really defines someone's strength of character, someone's moral tenacity is to what degree are they combating, are they struggling, are they trying to conquer, continuously so, with their Yetzirah. Again, of course, the subject of conquering the Yetzirah is a vast subject. Uh, like we said, uh, the, the Talmud and many sources talk about that the only reason why we're given Torah is because we have Yetzirah. If Adam hadn't sinned, Adam would not have gotten the Yetzirah, and therefore we would not would have not gotten Torah. Again, big, big subject, but really, that's really what it's all about. We have, you know, the upcoming holiday of, of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is all about presenting the contrast about, about the real king, God, and the faux king, the imposter king, the pretender, the Yetzirah. That's one of the main motifs of Rosh Hashanah. That's the idea. And we're choosing to abandon one and embrace the other. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. And again, that's that's the objective of Torah. That's why we have mitzvahs. All of that is to enable, to facilitate our conquest of the Yetzirah. Obviously, it's a big subject. But again, that is what determines someone's true might. Someone who's rich is someone who's happy with his lot. If you're not happy with what you have... No matter how much you have, you'll always view yourself as a pauper. Even if in absolute terms you're very wealthy, if you're not happy with that in relative terms, you'll never be happy. And I think there's another point here that really uh, undergirds this message, and that is that we have to recognize, as hard as it is to recognize, but we have to try to recognize that God determines what happens. And therefore, our success and our failure, yes, it's of course in our hands if we sit on the couch and wait for God to parachute wealth down our chimney. We're probably not, we're probably going to wait for a long time. But ultimately, the success and failure is not really in our hands. Yes, our effort is needed, but the results ultimately, they're in God's hands. And therefore, when I realized that my lot was apportioned to me by God, because God knows what I need, and gave me what I need to accomplish whatever it, is I need, whatever it is I need to accomplish, that's a tremendously gratifying, happy thought to realize that God made for me everything that I need to accomplish whatever it is I need to accomplish. It's a very happy thought. There's a blessing we say every morning, God made for me everything that I need. Some things maybe I want and I don't have, but everything I need, I have. And that's a very happy thought it's a very heartening thought to realize that whatever I need, I got, and whatever I don't need, I didn't get, and therefore my lot is tailored to my needs, and therefore I'm the happiest guy in the world, regardless of what I have, because I know whatever I, it is that I need, I have. And uh, there are some suggestions here in the commentaries about how to actually do this. 
the Hasid Yavis, for example, he says that, you know, if someone is poor and they win the lottery, of course, they'll be jubilant. They'll be exuberant. They'll be over the moon. But eventually that, that will wear off. And the attitude that they had on, until that point will eventually resume. It might take a month or two. It might take a year. But if they're not happy prior, they won't be happy afterwards, at least not long term. Because it's really the attitude that determines the happiness. But if someone instills in their heart continuously, always, at every point, that their lot is given to them by God, and even if they're rich, they right away could become poor. It could happen. Their fortunes could overturn overnight. But whatever they have was given to them predetermined by God, based upon, of course, calculations that are beyond us. Someone like that will always, at all times, be happy with whatever he has continuously. So again, it's an attitude change. If you find happiness with what you have, you'll always be happy. If you're always looking about what you don't have, if you're always looking about what someone else has, there's always going to be someone who has more than you, always. And therefore, you could always be miserable or you could always be happy. There's, of course, a story in the Talmud about Rabbi Akiva and his wife when they were so destitute and they got a knock on the door and it was an old man bedraggled who asked to borrow some hay because they didn't even have any hay. Could I have some hay for a bed? And he was like, look, there's people who have it even worse off than we have. Yes, it's pretty bad, but you know what? We have hay. We were able to lend out hay. We're able to give hay to someone who doesn't even have that. And that's another thought, you know, to think about how much more people have than us. Of course, it's endless. But there's a lot of people who have a lot less than we do. And that's a very, again, it's a very happy thought because it, it reminds you about what you do have. And if you have good health, if you have vision, if you have, you know, you have a car and a house and, and a family, you have things that we take for granted. But you realize how amazing that is, how gratifying it is. You truly will be happy with what you already have today. And yes, it doesn't mean that we should not seek upward mobility, of course. But that's not going to solve our problem. The attitude we have to have, regardless of where we are along the income and wealth spectrum or any spectrum, really, of achievement, we could want more. We could aspire for more. We should. But we have to be happy at whatever juncture we are at that point. Now, the Mishnah tells us that these benefits are in this world and in the next world. And we are praiseworthy in this world because when someone is self-sufficient, when someone feels like they can hold their own, it's a great feeling in this world. And you know what? When someone's happy with what they have, they're less likely to cheat. They're less likely to act dishonestly. They're less likely to steal. And you know what? That bodes very well for them in the next world. And finally, we read about someone who conveys honor, confers honor to other people that makes them truly honorable. So again, the commentaries are are vast, but just a few ideas. Uh, the Ruachim says that when someone accords honor to someone who's even beneath them, they, they give honor to everyone. What does that demonstrate? That demonstrates that within each person, they see their importance, their indispensability, and their their holiness. They see the soul. They see every person 
as created in the image of God, regardless of who they are. This person, God decided that they have worth. They're valuable. And therefore, if God considers them valuable, I'm going to consider them valuable. And in essence, when someone accords honor to others, they're recording honor to God by almost, so to speak, by agreeing to what God wants and by according the godliness within each person, according to that honor, it's equivalent to according God's honor. And therefore, if you read the verse, for those who honor me, i.e. those who honor God, I will honor. And the obvious question is, this is not someone who's honoring God. This is someone who's honoring other people. So why does someone become honorable by honoring other people? And then the verse says, well, if you honor God, you yourself will be honored. This is the answer. By honoring other people, you're in effect honoring God, and therefore God's going to make sure that you're honorable in his eyes. And of course, what can we hope uh, for more than that? Uh, my grandfather of blessed memory, he has an essay on the subject of honor. And he says some very powerful ideas. First of all, he quotes a verse in Psalms 30 that demonstrates that the essence of the soul, and in fact, the euphemism of the soul is honor. Because the verse says, let honor praise God, or sing God's glory. What does that even mean? The answer is, is that the soul is called honor. And he goes on to say, you know, we assume or we, we misassume that honor is, a, is an idea of treating other people with respect or with dignity. But the essence, the, the deep idea behind honor is to recognize and to reveal the stature of something. That's what the essence of honor is, is to recognize and reveal the stature of something. When I honor another person, I am recognizing I'm revealing this person's stature and this person's worth and this person's dignity. When I honor a Torah scholar, I'm revealing, I'm recognizing, I'm manifesting the essence of Torah. When I'm honoring God, what does it mean to honor God? It means to recognize and to manifest and to reveal God's oneness in the world. That's what it means. The Torah does not want us to philosophize about God and Torah. Our nation's mission is to honor God. What does it mean to honor God? It means to reveal God in the world. How do we do that? What is the power that we have within us to exhibit honor for God for other people? That is only the power of our soul. Our soul, again, its name is honor. Its central role in this world is to reveal the glory and the stature of God. It's like the, the ambassador of God within us is our soul. It's there to reveal the power of man, the essence of man, the greatness of man, the stature of man, and the stature of Torah. Very deep idea. What he's saying here is that when you see someone who honors other people, you are witnessing someone whose soul is operating within them. 
Whereas you have other people that are always denigrating, tearing down, castigating, always finding the fault in other people. There are people like that. What that demonstrates is that their soul, their beacon of honor, their beacon of nobility, of dignity is not operating within them. And therefore, everything, they can always find a flaw. When someone does that, they're suppressing their soul from operating within them. What does it mean? Who is honorable? He who honors others? What it means is who is someone who's exhibiting, is manifesting their soul? Someone who is behaving soulfully by always trying to understand the value and the need and the indispensability of everything. What an amazing idea. It's an attitude. The attitude of the soul is honor. Everything. Why does God want this? Everything is necessary. Everything is valuable. Why does God want this thing? That's how the soul thinks. That's all I can. It's the ambassador of God within us. What is the value? What is the need? What is the power? What is the potency? What is the stature of this thing? To reveal that, that's the pursuit of the soul. When someone does that to other people, that shows that they truly are honorable because they are acting like their soul, revealing the honor of everything that they encounter. Very powerful ideas that we see here from Ben Zoma, one of the great sages one of the great characters of, of, of the Mishnahic era. These four short, short aphorisms. Who is wise? Who is truly wise? Someone learns from all the, uh, everyone. Who is mighty? Someone who conquers their Yetzirah. Who is wealthy? Someone who's happy with her lot. Who is honorable? Someone who honors others.